Welcome to the Land Department Podcast. The state of land and energy as we see it. Brent, just how big of a deal is CCS in the industry? Well, I don't necessarily know how big of a deal it is, but it's here and, and it's getting a lot of attention and it's, you got a lot of different players coming in. Um, so I guess it's yet to be determined. There's a lot that the industry is trying to teach itself and, and get up to speed on. So, you know, like anything, the coolest thing about land work is you don't know what you're going to do tomorrow. And CCS is, is definitely one of those things. It's, it's brand new for us for sure. Yeah. There's, there's always something new. And because of that, we need to be well-educated. Uh, we've got someone that's going to help us understand a little bit more about all aspects, CCS, renewables, different things in Texas specifically. Brad, welcome to the show. Thank you guys very much for having me and I'm happy to be here. I gotta say, the most, the sweetest email handle in all of lawyerdom, oglawyers.com, right there. That's my man. <laughs> and I put the C in OG. <laughs> yeah. No, it's pretty awesome, man. I got a good chuckle when when the OGZoyer.com came out. That's awesome. So so it's Olivia Gibbs, right? Uh, Oliva Gibbs. Oliva close. Gibbs. Okay, cool. Yeah. My bad. So uh, yeah, tell us a little bit about your firm, what you guys specialize in, the kind of work that you do. Sure. We are a uh, firm based in Houston, Texas. Uh, we focus on all aspects of the upstream oil and gas industry. Um we uh, particularly do a lot of title and transactional work. Uh, we have offices here in Houston. We have an office in Columbus, Ohio. We have an office in uh, Lafayette, Louisiana, and an office in Oklahoma City. Um, we are uh, licensed across basically all major producing jurisdictions, and we're, we're very active in all of them. Um, and uh, we have a, a very robust upstream practice. Fantastic. Yeah, Dudley's interacted with with Zach and Brad for years and um, you know as things evolve and the business evolves they're always very proactive they do a ton for the industry um, particularly the land side of things with continuing education and 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 Brad spends a ton of time educating presenting on the, the latest topics of the day so I'm excited to have you on Brad thanks for some time and uh, looking forward to the conversation my pleasure yeah, so let's let's jump right in. You've been you've been doing a lot of education for a while, and as CCS becomes a bigger thing in the industry, as renewables continue to grow in the industry, what are the the mistakes that people make when it comes to this land work, some of the title work that's going on? Sure, uh, we're certainly seeing a lot of conversations arising out of the carbon sequestration side, but. A lot of the uh, business that we're seeing right now, a lot of the volume of the business we're seeing right now has to do with uh, accommodation between surface owners and mineral, mineral owners. Um, a lot of the places that uh, solar developers in particular are targeting and building their facilities happen to be legacy producing oil areas, which is you know a large part of East and West Texas, parts of North Texas um, and South Texas. So really all over the state. Um, and depending on where you are, you may run into various complexities uh, identifying who these severed mineral owners are, what rights they may be able to exert over the surface, or what steps they may be able to take to prevent you from developing the surface. Um, there's a, a case that's been getting a lot of uh, attention um, that was out of West Texas uh, from the El Paso Court of Appeals 
It was called the Midway Solar versus Lyle case. Um, in that case, the court uh, basically stepped through uh, the entire process for kind of analyzing these situations, who is going to have what rights. Um, and it's become more and more apparent that these uh, uh, solar developers in particular are going to need to be very aware of who these mineral owners are and uh, are going to want to get way out front of both identifying and obtaining agreements with these owners on the front end to avoid, you know, long protracted litigation like we saw in the Midway Solar case um, and to avoid, you know, kind of the the nuclear option of having to even remove their facilities or having to pay somebody for the total value uh, of their mineral estate. Yeah, and, and that's <clears throat> that's where you know the, the the paths cross between you know us as a broker between our oil and gas clientele and our you know renewables development clientele's um, you know and, and a lot of what we've been doing as you know Zach and Brad have been really trying to educate the the oil and gas community about hey this is this is what you need to know um, we're trying to develop and educate developers on hey you need to be thinking about the mineral estate in Texas. You, this shouldn't be an afterthought. Here's a prime example of what could happen. And, you know, these solar projects take a lot of time to, to come to fruition. And um, the mistake has been a lot of people have ignored the, the minerals or they were just ignorant to the fact that it was something they had to take care of. Um, so, yeah, the, the lines are crossing as far as who, you know, educating both sides and, and they're starting to interact. And we're going to see it more and more across the country. Yeah, I think that's a great point. And we've been seeing our oil and gas knowledge um, get a lot more traction with the developers because of the fact that, like you said, they're just not aware of some of these issues. And they're kind of coming to light on the back end when there's already a lot of sunk cost. Um, and in some of the worst instances, they're having to eat those costs and pick up and, and move to a different location, realizing that they're they're not going to be able to get accommodation from the mineral owners, either because they're holdouts or they are, uh, you know, demanding too much money or in some instances because they maybe can't even be located at all. So there's a, a number of different issues you might run into. Yeah, Brad, that might be a good, uh, you know, discussion point. I get asked this question a lot. How much of the mineral interest do I need to get accommodation from? And my answer always is, is I don't know. Whatever your insurance provider says you need to get. And, and uh, you know, underwriting is a big thing. And, and so we see we see anywhere from 60% to 85, 90% is what they're trying to get. Are you seeing the same? Yeah. So like you said, I mean, really, it's whatever satisfies the uh, underwriters for your title insurance policy. Um, for whatever reason, the magic number that, that we seem to encounter a lot is, is right around 75%. Um, but like you said, it, we're, we're seeing a sliding scale. I mean, obviously, if you can get 100% of the owners to sign off, that would be ideal. Um, as we all know, in many instances, that is uh, not possible. So you want to definitely start with the largest owners first. Um, there's, a, there's a certain amount of business risk where if the smallest 25% of the ownership is so fractionalized that, that everybody owns just a, a very small piece of that um, remaining 25% in my example, it may not really be worth anybody's time, cost, or effort to try to pursue, um, you know, any type of action against the solar developer. Now, you know, we've seen that scale slide a little bit, like Brent said, from about 
65% kind of on the low end up to about 80 or 90% on the high end. But, you know, I, I wouldn't be surprised to see it sort of settle in at that 65%. Um, one, one interesting note on that particular number is uh, another hot topic in Texas is the idea of uh, allocation and production sharing agreement. Wells, it's been sort of judged that, that if you can get 65% of the owners to sign off on, say, a production sharing agreement um, for these types of wells, that's enough to get permitted for a PSA well. So I'm not saying that there's any particular significance to that number, but th there's at least some precedent there saying that, hey, this is kind of a, a good lower end of, of owners that you would want to agree to something like this to kind of minimize the exposure to liability. So, you know, take that with a grain of salt, but, but just kind of a side note. Yeah, I mean, like anything in business, it's it's what your risk tolerance and what can your economics handle. Um, so, you know, it's, it's definitely a thing. I mean, I can tell you, gosh, just in our shop in the last two weeks, um, I bet we've been on six projects that are mineral title related for a surface development. Um, and, and I've got two presentations scheduled, you know, with clients uh, over the next month to talk about how can you get ahead of this? When can you do, you know, what work can you do early in the process to, to help steer your decisions in your ultimate surface location while factoring in the minerals without having to spend a fortune? Um, so, that, that's kind of what the, the industry on the renewables development side is, is learning. They're getting up to speed on what can I be proactive about? What does that look like? What's it involved? What's the cost associated with it? And things like that. So um, ever evolving industry, right? Um, everybody's trying to learn the, the best way to do things. So uh, fun times for a land man and, and, and OG lawyers as well. Right. <laughs> well I, think, I think the answer to that is you should try to get start identifying these issues as early as possible. It should really be part of, you know, uh, initially analyzing a, a potential tract is kind of looking at this mineral title and saying, okay, how chopped up is this? Um, you know, does the surface owner happen to own any portion of the minerals? Uh, by any chance, do they own a majority of the minerals or do they own nothing at all? And you're dealing with an entirely separate class of unknown owners, you know, just looking at, you know, surface ownership. Yeah. And I mean, we're doing things as part of our, uh, you know, one-to-one -one kind of client education on how to navigate the railroad commission or any other, you know, regulatory um, GIS system to determine how much historic production activity has there been. Um, hell, I, I, I scanned a to old Tobin map and sent it to a client the other day just so they could have a feel for where activity was historically. Um, yeah, that's and that's a whole new thing to a lot of folks in the in the solar development world. You know, and that's that's a great point, and it's good you're doing that. Um, that was a big part of that Midway Solar case, and and the reason that uh, the solar developer, you know, more or less won that case was very specifically because of the fact that there had been very little activity in that particular area. In fact, the the tract that was in question in that case had never been leased. There was no plans to lease it. They'd never marketed the minerals. They basically had no, they'd never had any real activity with the minerals at all. And, and ultimately the courts kind of punted on that case and said, Hey, look, you know, how can we determine the value of your minerals if you've never tried to market them in any way? Um, and you've never tried to develop them, develop them. You've never really tried to do anything here. So they kind of said, well, 
your case isn't, you know, yes, they should have sought agreements with you, but your case here wasn't really ripe in the court's opinion for dispute because you'd never tried to use the minerals for any purpose whatsoever. Now, as you can imagine, that's not going to be the case in a lot of areas. You know, the there will have been historic leasing. There could even be some production or some production very nearby. Um, the parties could have been approached to lease their minerals, uh, you know, things like that. Any If any small fact like that had been different in the Midway Solar case, in my opinion, it might have come out very differently. It might have come out the other way against the solar developers. So at the end of the day, that's what, you know, Dudley and a good broker um, and, uh, uh, you know, your, your attorneys should be trying to help you avoid is getting into that situation in the first place. And is this going to take precedence in other states too? What What is happening in some of the other areas that you guys are working, Louisiana, any anywhere else in the nation? So, I mean, you're, you're seeing the same type of, of analysis in most states. I mean, almost every state has some variation of what's known as the uh, dominant estate theory, which essentially says that the mineral owners are going to have an implied uh, easement or right to use as much of the surface as is reasonably necessary to develop. So what that means is that these mineral owners are going to have kind of a superior right to come on and use the surface um, to recover the minerals. Um, a lot of states have policies that favor recovering as much of the minerals as possible, um, you know, not stranding the minerals, things like that. So you know, every state's going to have some kind of variation on this idea that the minerals might have certain dominant rights and that there's going to have to be an accommodation between the mineral and surface owners. Solar facilities are very surface use intensive. They, they blanket nearly the entire surface unless you specifically designate a small drilling area somewhere. So that's the reason that, that covering a, a parcel of land with a solar facility can uh, essentially destroy all value of the minerals underneath it, um, at least, you know, kind of from a legal standpoint. Yeah, you, you hit on a good point. It's probably a good segue to talk about the actual waiver process or accommodation process, and it's, it's dedicated drill sites. <clears throat> um, you know, that, that's, you know, clients ask us, you know, how do, what's the best way to go about securing these waivers um, from the mineral estate, and it's, it's information, right? The more information that we can provide that person, the more information that we can provide to the owner to say, look, we have a plan to accommodate your rights as a mineral owner. Here it is. You know, this is our proposed development. These are our dedicated uh, drill sites within our development. We've done studies of historic production uh, in, in and around the area. And these are the methods and means and the spacing that we tend to see. And we've accommodated that. If you can show that as a, a solar developer, you're making educated decisions. You're accounting for their, you know, their rights and, and not just slapping something in front of them and asking them to sign, throw them a little money. Um, boy, you can go a long way. And that goes with any negotiation. It's, it's education and, and thinking that you're and portraying that you're, um, you're putting thought into their rights and their feelings and their value. Um, what are you guys seeing on that end, Brad? Yeah, no, that, that's a great point. Um, one of the questions we get from developers quite a bit is, is there some level of due diligence that we could kind of do on the front end to designate um, a drilling location, but without necessarily even having to get the mineral owners to sign off on it? Um, 
you know, it's generally not not a good approach because of the fact that it's going to be very difficult to please everyone. Um, you know, and and some of the arguments that come up are, well, okay, we're now in the era of horizontal drilling, so there's a lot more flexibility on on where you can locate, um, you know, a drill a drill site or a pad. Um, what happened again in that Midway Solar case is that they didn't confer with the mineral owners at all. They kind of unilaterally uh, chose some areas to put uh, dr- drilling setbacks or drilling islands, but the uh, um, the mineral owners, the Lyles, were able to find an expert witness um, to come forward and say, "Okay, look, you know, if you look at the historic trend line, the the development in the area, the best place and the best method of producing the minerals under this tract would have been to put a vertical well." right smack in the middle of the track, which is exactly where Midway had already built their solar facility. Now, again, with enough enough shopping around, you can find an expert witness to testify to just about anything you want. But in this case, you know, they, they found somebody who was willing to say, you know, you look at the geological data and you look at kind of what's been going on in the area. And um, basically this solar facility has preempted any possibility of ever developing these minerals because nobody's going to come drill a $10 million horizontal well here. Whether that's true or not, you know, I think it's a little beside the point. You know, what the point is, is that you've got to get these guys to agree up front to your drilling locations. I think, like Brent said, it it shows um, a, a lot of, you know, willing to collaborate, a willingness to collaborate, a lot of willingness to work with these guys. If you come forward and say, hey, look, you know, here's a little bit of research we've done up front. We think these might be a couple of good potential drilling sites. Um, here's why. If you guys are good with this, you know, we'll we'll write you a check. We'll get this signed and we can all move on down the road and, and not have to worry about fighting um, this out in the court system like, you know, like Midway Solar did. Yeah, this is uh, really fascinating. And obviously you you've, you've, you know your, your way around it really well, Brad. As, as far as, you know, we've talked a lot about the solar side on the, on the CCS side. What are some of the things that people need to be aware of that maybe they're not right now? So CCS, it's, it's kind of a growing area in Texas. Um, there's, there's a lot of talk about it. Um, there's, you know, been some permits that have been granted by the EPA. Uh, the Railroad Commission has kind of been giving um, ongoing jurisdiction over um, these types of wells. Um, and uh, where it's really headed is that, you know, right now, um, Texas is overhauling its regulatory scheme. They're looking at some things like uh, notice requirements, um, uh, public uh, comment, you know, a, a period for public comment on these CCS projects. Um, and they're seeking what's known as, as permitting primacy. And what that means, it's just kind of a fancy way of saying that the EPA is starting to delegate uh, the permitting process to certain states if they can show that they've built the right regulatory framework to kind of make sure that these CCS projects are uh, are being built, you know, appropriately, that the state is doing um, the right due diligence. And uh, part of that is going to be notice requirements to surface owners, mineral owners, their lessees. Um, in some cases, uh, adjacent um, owners or lessees. And this is to ensure that everybody's comfortable with the, you know, either the minerals have been, uh, the mineral reservoir has been depleted 
to a point that the CCS operations aren't necessarily going to uh, interfere much at this point, um, or at least to get these guys to kind of sign off. Uh, in many cases, you may be injecting um, the CO2, you know, far below uh, where minerals are being produced. Um, so things like that are being taken into account. Uh, and so far, only two states, uh, Wyoming and North Dakota, have been actually granted primacy by the EPA, and they've, they've been kind of given their own permitting process. Um, Louisiana, like Texas, is is seeking to do that right now. Uh, it's been in the past about a four or five year process to get, you know, primacy granted. So we're still in kind of the early stages here. But if the Railroad Commission is kind of able to get control of this permitting process, um, you know, we really could see um, we could see uh, these these class six CO2 wells, um, as they're being called, uh, really, really come into their own in Texas. And this could be a, a huge area moving forward. And, and my my prediction is that it will be. Yeah, I mean, <clears throat> as kind of our relationship goes between landmen and attorneys, we tend to see the front end of activity. And, and it's been a big thing for us and, and a number of other brokers uh, across the U.S. getting acreage capture, right? And so now the, the discussions is turning to, okay, how do we go about the permit process? Uh, how do we secure our rights? And then now with Rural Commission stepping in and starting to talk about notice to mineral estate owners, I mean, it's it's generating a lot of uh, work for, for some brokers to determine, you know, who those mineral owners are so you can properly notice them. And and it's an evolving thing. I, I see it depending on your your where you're injecting uh, CO2, if it's above or below known producing areas, um, God, it could, it could turn into a, a waiver scenario where you're having to, you know, for, for, you know, for your business risk, you've secured, you know, rights from the mineral owners. And so I see in some cases it evolving to that, um, you know, going beyond notice and into actual, you know, securing waivers from those, those parties. And, and a lot of the, um, a lot of the work we do is, is, Given that a lot of our carbon clients are oil and gas based type folks, they're very aware of mineral interest and development rights and things like that. So a lot of the decision making on our part is, you know, what surface owners also own minerals. Let's try to build our project there so that by virtue of securing our, right. our carbon leases, we've also minimized our risk on the mineral estate side. And so decisions like that are a big deal. Um, you know, in parts of the country where there's maybe less oil and gas development um, and, and less access to 3D seismic, we're doing 3D shoots, you know, to determine, yes, we've done the science, we've done the work, and there are no formations or zones capable of producing hydrocarbons, and therefore you minimize your business risk. So, again, it all goes back to, you know, like what I said earlier, business risk and, and good, edu informed decision making in your land capture part of the process. Yeah. And I think an interesting angle that, that kind of plays into what you were saying is that you've sometimes got these kind of activist plaintiffs attorneys uh, who are out there and they're, you know, they're talking to some of these, these mineral owners and saying, Hey, look, you know, your minerals probably have no value. They, they never have historically and they never will. Suddenly you've got this solar developer with very deep pockets, you know, developing, your land, this might be your best chance to squeeze some value out of your minerals. It may be your only chance. So, you know, th there could be some some other motivations um, 
going on here. And uh, I suspect there may have been a little bit of that in that Midway Solar case that I keep talking about is right. guys saying, hey, look, nobody's ever going to lease these minerals. Nobody's ever going to drill a well here. This might be our opportunity to kind of squeeze some, you know, some blood out of this stone. Um, and so just, you know, again, this is this is just my, my personal off the record take on things, but something to be aware of. I would I would second that take, sir. Well, and all the more reason to be more diligent, right? Exactly. Um, you know, you, you, you mentioned that Wyoming and North Dakota already received the permitting primacy and you that Louisiana and Texas are kind of maybe next up in line. What other states might be coming in line? What's that process like? How long does it take? What can we expect there? I mean, I wouldn't be as as of right now. I'm not aware um, of any other states that have actually kind of started this application process. That being said, I, you know, I'm sure that the legislatures of a number of producing states um, are are eyeing this, and we'll probably start to hear from them in the very near future. Um, I wouldn't be surprised uh, if you know Oklahoma was up next, um, maybe Ohio, uh, West Virginia, Pennsylvania, some of these states. I mean. They're going to kind of look at the uh, guidelines and the precedent that's been set, and they're going to look at the states that have done this successfully, and they're going to uh, most likely be able to even streamline this process a little bit. Um, And and I wouldn't be surprised to see it going faster and faster, um, you know, and getting, you know, under this sort of five-year window that we're seeing right now. Um, So, yeah, again, I'm I'm not necessarily aware of any other states, but but I can almost guarantee that every state – with both producing um, mineral reservoirs and solar a- solar development activity are probably, you know, this, this is part of the conversation at the, at the legislative level. Yeah, I guess what I would add to that on the, on the carbon side is you think about refining areas, you know, uh, Gulf Coast, obviously a, a, a big source of, of uh, carbon capture opportunities, but places like the upper Midwest, ethanol plants, um, you know, manufacturing uh, in the upper Midwest is a big thing. And that's where we've seen levels of activity on the on the acreage capture side of things. So I would expect those states to want to get in line and, and try to streamline that process as well in, in the coming months and years. Absolutely. Yeah, Brent, we've talked in the past about the value of land brokers uh, and just land men in general to renewables companies. It seems like that value is only increasing and you're seeing this really kind of marriage of the oil and gas side and the renewable side need to come closer together to be able to execute these pro- these projects properly. Um, how are you seeing that relationship kind of get closer and closer on both, both of your sides? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, um, <clears throat> you don't know you have a problem until you have a problem kind of thing. And, <laughs> yeah. and that's what any kind of, uh, growing and developing sector of, of industry experiences, right? And so, you know, frankly, as landmen learn more about the, the renewables development process, as, as we learn more about carbon injection, and um, you know, we start to see scenarios present themselves and then we can start thinking proactively. And so that's when you start thinking about, OK, what are the what are the rights of the mineral estate in a given state? How do, what attorneys can I consult with for guidance on how I draft my forms, language that I need to have in my agreements, things that landmen do early on is you know, can provide information and consolidate information about, you know, oil and gas development, all the things associated with the land that, you know, someone who's not versed in that just doesn't know to think about. Um, You know, we're starting to see and and really pushing a lot uh, 
with with our developer clients about understanding what the underwriting process is going to be like. You know, what can we do on the front end to to streamline the title efforts so that the product that goes to the to the uh, underwriters is is complete and comprehensive and provides them with all the information that that they need to be able to give you clear guidance on what you need to do to for them to issue that policy. <clears throat> and so you know, frankly, we have a lot of conversations with with underwriters as well. I mean, we work, they're clients of ours too. We provide them with abstracts. Um, we talk about a lot about what do you need from us? Um, what can we provide to, to provide a better product? And and what can we do for our developer clients to get ahead of things and provide them with information? And um, so, I mean, that's the that, that's the season that we're in. It's it's really a lot of education and, and conveying to, you know, clients what a, a good attorney can provide you from a value standpoint, what a good land broker can provide you and what you should be asking and expecting of a good land broker. It's like anything, there's there's good and bad. And, and um, you know, you want to steer people to quality folks that, that can represent our industry well. Yeah, I completely agree. I I, I sometimes jokingly refer to these as, as boots meets Birkenstocks nego- <laughs> negotiations, you know. Um, and uh, you're, uh, you know, I, I think one of the, the value that a good broker familiar with the area really brings to the table is they understand mineral title, which is Brent can probably attest uh, many title insurance companies and, and underwriters don't really know the first thing about oil and gas titles. Um, they don't really understand how it all works. And, and they, they quite commonly write, you know, those, those issues out of their policies completely. And, uh, so, you know, brokers, not only do they understand um, sort of the title side of things and how to identify the owners, you know, the, the really good brokers actually know how to go out and find these guys and communicate with the mineral owners. Um, they speak their language. They know how to talk to the mineral owners, how to talk to their lessees, uh, how to kind of encourage them and, and coax them to, to enter into these agreements, what they're going to be looking for so that you're not coming forward with a, with an agreement that's so nefarious that, that nobody will even entertain it. And we've seen that, you know, we've seen these, uh, we've seen solar developers kind of think that they're dealing with, uh, you know, not to be a little non-PC, some kind of backwoods rubes, where in reality, a lot of these owners are highly sophisticated. They've owned these minerals for years, sometimes for generations. They, they have a, a lot of income, you know, from their minerals. They know the value and they're very wary of anybody approaching them to sign anything because they've seen every trick in the book. You know, they've been asked to sign every, you know, sign away every right, you know, they've ever owned at one point or another. And and they're, they're cautious and they're smart. And if you know how to approach these people um, and, and you know how to deal with them, you're going to get a lot further than, than, than a, a heavy handed approach. Certainly. I mean, it's, it's the art of negotiating, right? It's in the oil it. gas space in any space, really. It's, you know, how can everybody walk out of this feeling like they, they got a fair shake and that they've got a good deal and, and that's how you have to go into it. So uh, when it boils down to it, you're dealing with people and people are proud of what they have and you have to respect that and, and do your best you can to educate them and, and then, but also represent your client and represent the negotiate your in your client's best interest. So that's it's just a just another land deal, really. You know, that's when it boils it. down to it. Yeah, 
I love that boots meets Birkenstocks. We may title that the, the title of this episode. Is this going to be the name of the podcast? Maybe so. Yeah, <laughs> you, you may have influenced us, Brad. Uh, you know, speaking of the boot side of things, you know, you're not just doing renewables law uh, across the nation, but you also in the oil and gas side, obviously. What are some of the trends you're seeing these days on the oil and gas side of, of your work? I mean, the trend right now is just that, that everybody's busy. Um, you know, we're seeing, we're seeing a lot more capital discipline. Um, uh, you know, a lot companies running maybe less rigs, but trying to get a lot more value out of them, drilling more uh, infill type locations, kind of maximizing their value. But with prices, you know, appearing to kind of stick between that uh, $85 to $90 on the oil side and between about 6 and $7. And, you know, with all the forecasts looking uh, for even a rise in prices, maybe uh, a little bit moving into next year, um, you know, we're, just, we're seeing activity picking up everywhere from uh, the Permian to the Bakken. Um, and in particular, the, the, the Utica, the Haynesville, the Marcellus, um, all of the all of the gassy plays right now um, are, are very hot. Um, they're getting a lot less media attention um, than oil, you know, just because, uh, you know, uh, prices at the pump sort of uh, uh, distract everybody's attention. But I think natural gas may be the real unsung uh, hero of development over the next several years. Um, I, I think the sky is really the limit. And uh, uh, we're going to just see a lot more activity in that space. Yeah, it echoes what we've been seeing, Khalil, for, yeah. for a number of months. I mean, those are those are all very active areas for us. And, and that's where we're focusing a lot of our efforts, a lot of our shifting of our manpower and who we have working what projects and, and things like that are all centered around the, the more gassy uh, areas of the, of the country. Well, this has been fantastic. I've really appreciated your expertise, Brad. Thanks for, for jumping on with us. We'll have to probably have you on again soon because these these things are constantly changing and uh, we, we appreciate having you on. So thanks for your time. Absolutely. My pleasure. I, I'd love to do an update um, edition here uh, sometime in the near future. And uh, again, just thank you guys. Uh, it's been a real pleasure. Uh, thanks. Thanks again, Brad. Really appreciate it, buddy. Thanks for listening to The Land Department. Check out our website in the show notes or visit dudley-land.com to learn more about us.